Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 Peter. So if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn or tap your way to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to study some of God's Word towards those that need some encouragement. The book of 1 Peter, and this might bum you out, but I hope that you'll follow, that you'll stay with it, and it'll get to the encouraging part. But the book of 1 Peter is largely about suffering. And yet when you read the thing, it's also got a kind of cheerful tone to it. Those things don't seem to go together until you understand what it's all about. So kind of piggybacking off of what we had last week as Ross was telling us, reminding us from Scripture to keep going, to not quit. We've got this whole new series, and in First Peter, we're going to think about why we don't quit or how we keep going in the Christian life, because, boy, it is a lot like motherhood. So let's think about it this way. It's Mother's Day, as you're all very aware of by now, and if you're a mom and if you've had to go through that experience, you know it's pretty rough. It can be very difficult. I mean, you could be like poor old Jess uh, saying, you know, three and out three in a row and never again. It's not easy, and it's not easy when they're little, and it's not easy when the littles are multiples in a row. My, my wife Rachel was trying to encourage a young mother recently, and she was talk, talking about what's going on and how many she's got so quick, so young, and trying to deal with all of their physical needs with infant care and then having another and then another. And Rachel told her, listen, if you can just make it two years, you'll be good. And she was telling me this advice she shared with her. And I was like, did that encourage her? That sounds awful. That's like a, the sentencing or something. Two years? That's not, that's not grace. That's just like, ah, just survive. You know, it's prison camp. But if you get out the other side, because it is, it's a slog. Mothers uh, experience what most of us just experience with life. I mean, at, at times when things get really tough, you have these long days. But in some ways, you also have kind of short years. Stuff stacks up. It's intense. And then you look back and you're not really sure where it went. There's a cruelty to motherhood on the other side of it, too, where you give and give and give. And then these birds just fly away. Well, I want to think about what Peter says in the Christian life, because continuing with something that's worth it, but incredibly, extraordinarily difficult that's all over the Christian life. It's something that we need. It's something that I need. And so I want to try and explore it with you. In 1 Peter, he tells us about God's grace to keep us, even though things feel so precarious. It says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia in Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the pacing of this seems a little bit odd, what this is is a letter. It was a letter by one of the leaders of the early church, a guy named Peter, who is one of Jesus's disciples, and he is writing a letter to some of the churches. And so the re way this kind of reads is because it's a letter. He's saying who he is, he's saying who he's writing to, and then he gives him this greeting, grace and peace. Then he begins the meat of the letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's a born again, a living hope, and then he describes that living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There's so much going on there. But if you look, he's saying that we have this hope despite how hard things are, because there are two things that even though things in this world seem so kind of perishable, they seem so fading and they're so quickly defiled. I remember being a little kid. It was preschool age. It was one of my first memories. And the lady who led our preschool had this big fluffy hair, and she always had white kids. And I have no idea how she kept them so white. She was a preschool teacher. Shouldn't they be getting dirty? My shoes get dirty all the time. And yet her kids were constantly pure as the driven snow. How? She kept them undefiled. I don't know. Something godly, apparently. There's something imperishable, undefiled, and unfading promised that seems wildly impossible in our world where everything is so perishable. And then not only does he declare this inheritance to be imperishable, he also describes something else, something that's going to be guarded, something that's going to be kept, something that by God's power will remain. Well, what's he describing? He's also describing you. He's promising in these opening verses of his letter that God will keep an inheritance imperishable for you, and he's going to keep you. You're going to make it. Now, that's hard for us to believe. I recently watched, rewatched one of my favorite documentaries. I don't know how many of you like documentaries. Okay, it's hard to tell. The documentary crowd doesn't usually yell, you know? I don't know. <laughs> Stereotypically, yeah, they're just kind of like a tip of the, you know, maybe they push up their glasses or something. And, okay, yes, documentaries are really great, especially now. It's like a golden age of documentaries. And there's one about these marathons called the, or this marathon, this, this endurance race called the Barkley Marathons. And it's called marathons with a plural because even though it's one race, it's the length of many, many, many marathons. It's an ultra marathon. It takes place in the mountains of East Tennessee, and it's very difficult to apply. There's no way to get to it. You kind of got to know a guy who knows a guy. But if you do apply and get in, he only takes 40 of the thousands of worldwide applicants. He takes 40 runners, and he allows them to do this endurance race. You have to make it over 130 miles in only 60 hours, which sounds impossible, but it gets worse because those miles are up and down the terrain of rural Tennessee. So you're going off trail for almost two-thirds of it, and there's no markers, and there's no health stations, and there's no nothing. There's just points. You have to get to those points, get a little marker from those points, and come back to start your next loop. In the course of the race, you go the equivalent of, you have the elevation gain and elevation descent of going up and down Mount Everest twice. In the course of some, yeah, thanks. (laughs) In the course of some 40 years of the race, only 15 people have ever finished it. Pretty intense. And yet, thousands of people apply annually. People come back time and time again if he allows them. 
And by he, the guy who runs this crazy thing, this guy named Lazarus Lake. It's not his real name, but that's his, like, in quotes name, Lazarus Lake. And he's very East Tennessee. He's an old man, and he's got glasses and a big, big beard. And the only thing that protrude from that kind of steely mask is a little round nose and a cigarette. (laughs) And he runs this race that's impossible. And people come time and time and time again, and he keeps making it impossible. It's impossible to apply, but if you get in, it's impossible to run. And yet people do it, and they do it and do it and do it. And these documentaries, and I've seen maybe two now, that document these people's journey, they really highlight the why. And the Lazarus Lake guy has thoughts on it, but it's, it's that people really want to, to prove themselves. They want something that shows that they can do the impossible, that they matter. They want something to validate them. And a lot of them put that validation on the Lazarus guy because his post, he just stands by this little, goal, uh, little uh, yellow sort of fence post gate and he waits and you go from there out and you do your loop and it's a marathon and you come back and you give him the markers and he checks you off and then he sends you out on your next loop. And he just stands there for five days and smokes and waits on you to come and he, he doesn't really give you much. You have these people that are just killing themselves to make this race work, to actually be one of the finishers of the Barkley Marathons. And as they come back time and again, they, they hand it to him and, I did it, I, you know, I made it. And he just hands them the next bib and, you know, sends them on. Now, it's compelling television. Watch it if you get a chance. However, the greater analogy of it is what I think applies to the Christian life. Why is it so difficult to continue? If you're thinking about Christianity and you're looking at it from the outside, I don't know that you have this experience, but if you've walked with it for some period of time, there is a fatigue that can happen. Especially if you're trying to do stuff that's, you know, kind of big stuff. And you're pushing yourself and you're slaughtering yourself. You're out there and you're in the cold and you're in this this wilderness. You're trying to figure it out. And every now and again, you get to come back into camp and you get to stand before your guru and all he does is send you out again. Or, you know, if you don't make the marker in the right amount of time, send you away. Over time, if you're not careful, your view of yourself, your view of your Christian life and your view of God will dry up into this concept that it's on you that you go for unimaginable distances with unbelievable tasks, and you come back to God every now and again, and all He does is send you away or tell you you've, you've, you've failed. Well, that's not the experience that Peter is describing. It's something that we have to argue against, and we need the words of Scripture to argue against it. He is saying that, no, 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 far from sending you away... And caring nothing about you, God is with you and he loves you. And how do I know this? Well, the language that Peter's using. He is talking about two things, this living hope, this thing inside us that grows, that expresses hope despite the difficulty all around us. We're going to dig into that living hope as we go through the whole of this book. But described in verses 4 and 5, he talks about two things that are imperishable. As we've said, your inheritance and you... What do we mean by those two things? One, let's talk about the inheritance for a second. 
as you think about that word inheritance, we have to kind of pull it out of some of the associations you have. The one that we all kind of have is the one that we use that word for, which is somebody passes away and maybe, you know, if they liked you and they had something, they give you an inheritance. They bequeath something to you. Okay, sounds great. Is that what God's talking about here? Kind of. You can get messed up, though, if you think about it in the way that we think about inheritance. If you think about it as, have you ever heard the phrase pie-in-the-sky religion? It's the concept that we kind of fool ourselves into believing that we give up pleasure now and we will get pleasure later. And our secular world sees that as just so foolish because you don't know what's going to happen after you die. So why not eat and drink? Because tomorrow we die. You don't know what's on the other side. Why not have your pleasure now when you can see it rather than waiting for something that may or may not be? Again, if you're an investigator to Christianity or somebody you knew, you might think that's a pretty compelling argument. Well, let me argue back against it. What is the inheritance that he's talking about? I think many of us think about heaven as this place of gold. And of course, in Revelation, it does describe streets of gold. But it's not like you get to heaven and finally you're rich. Again, maybe I just have the mind of a child, but I think about Scrooge McGuck diving into that giant pool of gold coins. Do you know what I'm talking about? The documentary crowd or the Scrooge McDuck crowd. Uh, You've got to be one. All right. He dives into a big pool of golden coins and he swims around in them. He comes back up and he backstrokes and like spits it out like water, but it's golden coins because he's so rich. Is that what heaven is? Because if so, what are we trading for? You're telling me I can't have pleasure now and I will have pleasure later, that somehow I'm going to accept a lot of pain and rejection now and then someday I'll get the same thing? Doesn't add up. Doesn't make sense. If so, though, I think you've missed what he's talking about with this inheritance. The inheritance that we have from the Lord is the Lord. As you read through Scripture, you see that time and time and time and time Again, he's promising that he will be with us. He's promising the great reward that he will be with us. Oh, if we had the time, we could trace it all through Scripture. But let me just take you to a couple of big places. My favorite chapter in Scripture, Psalm 16. And the Lord talks about it. He says, the, the person who's praying to the Lord, he says that the Lord is his portion and his cup. The lines have fallen for him in beautiful places. Indeed, he has a beautiful inheritance. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples as he is about to go to the cross, this is his last sermon to these men before he goes away to die, says, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, they got a lot of reasons for their hearts to be troubled. He's telling them that he's going away. They're in this one upper room that they're locked in with enemies all around. They got a lot of reasons to be troubled, but he says no, and then he gives them a reason not to be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What's the inheritance? Is it this Mac house with all these rooms? Is it bunk beds? No, he's saying it's him. That where he is you may be also. Also, 
The great inheritance that he's promising, the great thing that he's telling us will happen is that we will be with him. It's not less than all those pleasures that we talk about. It's that plus. I mean, he's talking about preparing a place for us. Now, when we were early on in our church planning journey, we we helped to start Hope Church. And I've always been supported by Hope Church financially. Just dispel any rumors. It was not lucrative. (laughs) For a long time, not that you guys were like, you know, making us destitute or something, but for a long time, it was tight. And we were frugal until birthdays. Because my wife is nuts for birthdays. She loves the opportunity to spend all of her time and energy over the course of a month preparing for a one-day shot to tell this kid that we love him. And so she does. She spends all kinds of time. She's cultivating themes with them over the course of a long time because when they're young, young kids, they don't really know too much and they can't stick to anything. And so she's going to plan it for a month. She's got to really implant in their head that the theme that they want is, you know, Dora the Explorer or whatever. And so she's, she's working with them. She implants this idea, inception, this idea, and, she, and then plans out the party. And with care that I don't have for almost anything else in the world, She lovingly picks out napkins and plates and cups. She plans little party games that are on theme, and then she builds all the little things that we need to execute those party games. She invites people, makes sure that they're able to come and that the schedules work, which is always nuts. Also, on that moment, that kid can have a great afternoon. Why? Is it because she loves birthdays or cake? No. It's because she loves that child. She loves them. She loves them so passionately that she'll do anything for them to just see and experience you are loved. Do you understand that the inheritance that he's talking about here is himself, that he is doing all of this, that he's going to all these links to bring you to himself and say, you are loved. It's Christmas morning. Yeah, you're going to open up all these gifts, but the point of the gifts is to show from your parents great abiding love. Yes, this inheritance, but what is the inheritance? He's showing you himself. Now, the problem is if you don't value Jesus, he's telling you he loves you. He's proposing. Well, what if you don't love him? Listen, our church and Christianity throughout the millennia exists to show you that he really is good. That he's worth having, that he's worth knowing. That this Jesus is the only person who's really lived and shown what perfection can be. That he loves and he loves deeply, that he sacrificed. If the teaching about him is true and we believe that it is and we believe that it's proved that it is because of the resurrection, then this Jesus is God and yet became a man to seek you, to find and bring back you. You see how the two things are connected. We talk about this inheritance that's up in heaven and is unfading, and yet also we talk about how he's holding you, he's guarding you until that day. How does that happen? How is that possible? How can it be that you and I could be forgiven, could be held, could be somehow made undefiled? We are defiled. How do we become undefiled? We are fading. How do we become unfading? Ask your doctor. 
You are perishable. Your fruit that is slowly getting soft. <laughs> How do we become imperishable? Well, this is the story of what he's saying. This is what he has done for us. This is what Christ has done for us. He has made a way for us to know this Lord, to be brought back into relationship with meaning, with beauty, with true, capital L, love. This is the country that you've always wanted to visit. This is the food that you've always wanted to taste. This is what satisfaction itself feels like. This is the inheritance that he's made a way for you to have. And then you say, okay, that's me. I'm in. I accept. Great. Now, how are you going to be guarded until that day? How many years do you have ahead of you to continue in this route, to continue seeking, to continue looking, to continue bringing the knowledge of who he is to the world? I, I don't know how you think you're going to. Let's take the Mother's Day angle again. I don't know how you think your kids are going to. My kids are young enough that we're still praying for their salvation. But once they do come to Christ, Lord willing, I think you can imagine very carefully what it would feel like, the anxiety that you feel that they continue to pursue the Lord when they go to high school, when they go to college, when they go out on their own and do God knows what. How will we continue? Well, I want to take you to the Old Testament and I want to just continue to have the Hope Church people understand that the Bible is connected, that the Bible is good, that you should know your Bibles. Many people, when they come to Christ, when they come to understand that God is God, they start reading this New Testament. And in the New Testament, they have these Gospels that tell you the story of Jesus's life, and it's blowing your mind with meaning. Then they read through the rest of the New Testament, and there are all these letters that tell you difficult and, and hard things, and they make it clear, and they make it understandable, and they teach you about the Christian life, and it's beautiful. And then you try to read the Old Testament. Somebody tells you to read the Bible in a year, so you start with Genesis 1, and there's all kinds of stories, but you run out of energy real quick. And then you start to wonder, you don't feel like you're allowed to wonder, but you start to wonder why the Old Testament's even there. Maybe we could knock this out. We all carry digital Bibles now, but if we had to carry real ones, my goodness, how much thinner if you're just carrying the New Testament? Maybe you keep the Psalms. Well, I want you to see why we need the Old Testament. The Bible is very clear in the New Testament that this is very related to, is very dependent upon, very connected to the themes and the stories in the Old Testament, that God shows you what it is to be a believer and be his follower, to be his people by showing you time and again throughout the whole of the Old Testament what it was like for these people that he made his people, the nation of Israel. That God plucked out this one guy, Abraham, and he gave this promise to this guy that he would be his God, that he would create from him a nation, and that through that nation, he would display something of himself to the world, that through that nation, the whole of the world would be blessed. That nation is just Abraham, and then they have a kid, and then that guy has a kid, and then that guy has 12 sons, and those sons go into Egypt. Long story, read Genesis. But they become this great people. And as they become a greater and greater number of people, the Egyptians get a little nervous and enslave them. By the time you get to the second book of the Bible, which is called Exodus, Moses is this leader that God brings to take the enslaved people of Israel out of Egypt and bring them into his presence, into this promised land where they're going to be with him as symbolized by the temple, the tabernacle that will one day become a temple. 
But to do that, God miraculously sends these plagues to wrest the people of Israel out of Egypt and then to bring them into this promised land. Now, the reason I want you to think about it so carefully is because of what God does with His people as He's bringing them out, how He shows them what it is to rely on Him. Are you exhausted? Are you fearful? See if you see yourself then in this story. God leads the people out miraculously. They come to the Red Sea. He could have led them north. They could have gone up to the Philistines. But instead, God knew they weren't ready for that yet. And he brings them to the Red Sea. So the people of Israel are now stuck between a massive body of water and Pharaoh. It says in Exodus 14, chapter four, uh, verse 4, God is speaking to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Very interesting as you read through the book of Exodus, Pharaoh hardens his own heart time and again, and eventually God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh comes out and he pursues. He, God is telling Moses he will pursue the people of Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Here's the drama. The people of Israel are stuck. Pharaoh and his armies are coming. The people of Israel can see them. They see these chariots. They see this massive, incredible army that's coming to attack a slave people on the run. And God just said that he's going to get glory, that he is going to pursue this host, that, that the Egyptians and all the world are going to know that he is the Lord. You skip down to verse 10, and it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see the fear? Do you see the lack of faith? What's their equation? Their logic is that we're a slave people being pursued by the greatest military force on the earth, and we got water, we're stuck. It makes sense to me for them to be fearful. I don't know that I would have said the same thing that they said to Moses. They said some kind of funny stuff here. What, are there no graves in Egypt that you're going to take us to die in the wilderness? It was pointed out to me earlier that sometimes I read the Old Testament stuff with kind of a Mel Brooks intonation. They were Jewish. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but they're fearful. Of course they're fearful. But they're fearful... Because they don't trust. God has proved ten times over. God has proved throughout the whole history of their nation that he will care for them, that he will provide them, that he will take them out of Joseph's prison and put them on top of the world. And yet, push comes to shove. Instead of trusting the Lord, they fear. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Listen, Hope Church, what Peter is telling us 
is to have our eyes on this living hope, to remember the God who can guard us. We talk about waiting on the Lord. Do you know what that verse means, that concept through Scripture, to wait on the Lord? It doesn't mean not do anything. It's not like you could not have me here one day, and I'm just on my couch at home. What are you doing? Well, I'm just obeying God's command to wait on the Lord. No, of course not. What it means is to continue in what you've been commanded to do, continue in pursuing the Lord and these kingdom purposes, all the while waiting on this one day, all the while waiting on this salvation. The people of Israel are freaking out. You and I in our Christian life, if we're not freaking out, are at least exhausted. And part of the reason is because we're living with the same sort of functional atheism as the people of Israel. The people of Israel can see water. The people of Israel can see armies. And the people of Israel can see dumb old Moses. And there's no way they can see that they're going to get out of this situation. Well, what are they leaving out? Who do they not see? You and I, we're living this Christian life. We're running around like crazy. We're trying to see people come to know the Lord. We're trying to raise our kids well. We're trying to keep our marriage intact. We're trying to hopefully help Hope Church continue to exist on a week-to-week basis. And we're running around and we're exhausted. Well, why? We see the difficulty. We see the order list. We see what we know we're supposed to do. But what are we leaving out of that equation? God says to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. God says, Hey, I got this. If you wait on the Lord, He's going to renew your strength. And He tells Moses, and He makes it sound like Moses should have known to do this, which... But hold your hand out over the, with the staff. Hold your hand out over the water. And the waters part, the people pass through, and their enemies are destroyed. Brothers and sisters, people that are investigating, I want you to see this God. The whole of the book of 1 Peter is taking you through this process of remembering this God. Just putting your eyes again off of your own strength. You're trying to run this marathon by yourself, and all you got is Lazarus standing there smoking. No, that is not the case. You look up to this God, this living hope that we have through Jesus Christ, this living hope that we're going to explore over the whole rest of this series. And you remember what God will do, what He can do, what He's promised to do, as He keeps you guarded until that day. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that You make it clear to us where we stand with You. For those that have put their faith and their trust in Jesus to save them, Lord, we pray that you would remind them of the love that you have, of the promises you've made, of the care that you give. Lord, for those that are investigating and just thinking about who you are, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to know them better, to maybe have them come for the rest of this series, Lord, and think more about what you say to your people. And Peter was not some great guy, Lord. Your scriptures clearly testify that Peter was a very normal man, but he knew an incredible Savior. And you guarded him, Father. He failed you time and again. And yet, Peter, as we know from church history, not only writes these books, but eventually is hung on a cross upside down, praising you even to his death. Lord, you are able to keep us. 
you are able to bring us to yourself to enjoy an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, imperishable. Please teach us to desire that, Lord. Please teach us to be yours. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.